1: Until very recently, I would say that most of the people in the Cabinet were definitely not as good as people who were in the Cabinet when we started. And I think that's a choice that uh, Johnson has made. I'm Christopher Hope,
2: Chopper to my friends, The Telegraph's chief political correspondent. Welcome to a festive edition of Chopper's Politics. It does all feel a bit, mm, 2020, doesn't it? To Christmas or not to Christmas? To restrict or not to restrict? That is the question. The difference? Well, we've moved from Plan A to Plan B, from Alpha through Delta to Omicron, and from no jabs to lots of them, as Boris Johnson launched his Get Boosted Now campaign just this week. Now, also this week, MPs voted in favour of Covid parties for nightclubs and large events. But not all of them, because Boris Johnson faced the biggest rebellion of his premiership so far when 128 MPs defied his so-called vaccine passport scheme. And worryingly for him, of those 100, yes, 100 were Conservatives. And one of those rebels joins me now in the Red Lion pub.
0: I start, I start every morning, wake up in bed, just to quickly check my WhatsApps, and I'm straight on the Telegram. Oh, <laughs>
2: brilliant, brilliant. Deanna Davidson, the MP for Bishop Auckland and one of the politicians elected in the 2019 crumbling of the so-called red wall. Welcome to Chopper's Politics.
0: Really delighted to be here.
2: We're two years on from the Boris Johnson election landslide, which brought you into Parliament for the first time. How have you found it?
0: A journey, (laughs) for sure. Um, It's been a bit chaotic, really, because, you know, we first got in, we were just learning our way around the estate, getting to grips with Hmm. setting up our offices, and then obviously got sent home in the wake of... The coronavirus pandemic and since then it's kind of just felt a bit like scrambling to keep up with casework and changes in legislation and trying to just keep people up to date with all the advice plus all the other stuff we're focusing on like our own local campaign priorities so it's been um yeah it's been it's been fascinating um and yeah a, a great journey but gosh not quite the the sort of smooth sailing I think any of us expected when we got in in December. You're quite 19. right. Are you
2: enjoying it? That's the first question to ask you. Are you, are you enjoying being an MP? Is it? Yeah, fun? yeah. I think yeah. I think
0: I think largely yes, but there are days when it's really tough. When mm. either you know your casework levels are soaring through the roof, often because of something that's happening couple of hundred miles away in Westminster that's nothing to do with you and what you're doing locally and you know I can't deny that sometimes a social media abuse is really really difficult Um, and the scale of it is huge and people at the moment seem very frustrated very angry Um, I've had to report a few threats over the past few weeks which is never never a fun thing so that detracts a bit from kind Mm -hmm. of enjoyment but you know It's the most incredible job. We're doing stuff to change lives. You know, we're able to do that on a local level, but also on a national level. So I can't really think of anything else I'd rather do. Were
2: you expecting to win in 2019? I mean, I guess you'd (laughs) have to say to everyone, of course I'm going to win, but were you really expecting to win?
0: I think it depends when you asked me, because I was selected way back in um, September 2018. And in sort of spring 2019, things weren't looking great for us as a party. Um, And, you know, we had the European elections where we polled terribly and we were way, just, just, yeah, just doing appallingly. And at that point I thought, goodness, I might be a candidate for another two, three, four years and still never come even within a sniff of winning. It all turned around when Boris became leader and became prime minister and things started feeling really good on the doorsteps. There was a sense of kind of optimism. Um, And so I think... I'm quite oddly superstitious, so I would never let anyone throughout the campaign trail say to me, you're going to be an MP in a few weeks. Never. <laughs> never. I'd shut that down immediately. That's what I mean.
2: So it's like winning the lottery. You're not expecting it. So you mentioned Boris Johnson, uh, Daniel Davison, and how he really got you into Parliament. So why have you rebelled so much since you came here?
0: Yeah, I've rebelled so much. There have been, there have been three. <laughs> how I'm many not, times? Come I'm on. not a serial rebel yet. Um, I've, I've rebelled three times, twice on coronavirus restrictions and once on the social care national insurance rise. You know, I've outlined my positions quite strongly on them. Um, but I certainly don't consider myself a serial rebel. I think, <laughs> you know...
2: On Monday, you were rebelling, weren't you, with 100 MPs? Yes. On, on Tuesday, I should say. It yeah, was, yeah, that, that pass- was
0: um, against the vaccine passports, um, which are, apparently we are not to call vaccine passports. No, um,
2: certification scheme Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, I, I think a rebellion isn't kind of, you know... Uh, it's, I, I don't consider it anything like a vote of confidence of the Prime Minister or anything like that. It's, it's about a policy. It's about something that the government's doing that, you know, for whatever reasons do, do, you do reflect you feel, on and don't don't feel the right thing. Do you feel
2: dislocated from the parliamentary party? Because the big policy you'll be carrying about is levelling up. That matters yes. a lot to your constituents. Mm-hmm. The white paper's delayed. The leaks so far appear... They, they're quite... I'm not sure, they, not sure they're grabbing the debate in the way they need to in order to ret- give a return for your voters' the next election.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, we need to see progress. We really do, you know, in places like Bishop Auckland, where I'm, I'm really fortunate to represent it's been le- left behind for far too long by successive governments and, and for generations. And finally, things are starting to turn around. I mean, we've had pots of money through the levelling up fund and the stronger towns fund, which I'm so, so grateful for. And, you know, we're going to use to do some really positive things that will really hopefully make a difference. But, you know, it has to be more than just money. Money is useful. And when places have been underinvested, and of course, it's really important, but we have to look at a much wider picture. So the levelling up white paper is, is really going to be crucial. Um, obviously, we need to kind of wait and see what's actually in it when it's published in January. But it has to be ambitious. It mm. really does. You know, we have to really aspire to, to yeah. get this right. But
2: deliver change by the next election also. So it's going to be both those things, isn't it? I think.
0: I think certainly signs of progress, for sure. And you know there are there are some good things happening. You know, as I've mentioned, the kind of funds and pe- when people start seeing spades and grounds and 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 things actually happening on their doorsteps, I think they'll really start to feel that. But one of the big things that we're focused on in County Durham at the moment is devolution, because we've seen how successful that's been in the Tees Valley, which we border onto with Mayor Ben Houch and getting all kinds of incredible investment and and kind of opportunities. And we're lucky that we're kind of within commuter range of that, so a lot of people in my patch can can kind of get those jobs too and and access those opportunities. But we want a slice of that action in county durham you know we want a, a bit of that too so we're at the minute um looking towards getting a county deal where we'd get our own powers we can set our own direction and vision as a county to really create those opportunities yeah. for individuals it's, it's in localism to use
2: a david cameron's term from it it all those
0: years ago. and it's it's you know it's it's the sort of stuff that makes we politicos yeah. get really excited yeah, about yeah. you know governmental reform but i think it is actually going to be crucial because of those tangible opportunities and what it means for people day to day It strikes
2: me the most voluble group on the back benches are the the red wall I call you a Red Wall Tory MP. Forgive me if that's wrong, but oh, that's it's Blue Wall now. Blue Price. Wall, forgive me, Blue <laughs> Wall. Sorry, but the, the, you guys—I mean, you know—you're you, you're new in. Also, you've got these sometimes quite small majorities, and you have to be seen to be delivering for these mm-hmm. areas. Whereas the maybe more southern Tory MPs with big majorities are less sensitive I think to to moving away from tory values I think you're perhaps more tory than the southern MPs possibly
0: <laughs> it's very community focused I think and I think that's what we see from a lot of people who were elected in the sort of the, the blue wall intake from from 2019 because, you know, we recognise that we were given a massive opportunity and people put a lot of faith in us, often for the very first time voting Conservative. And so you want to be seen in our communities actually doing stuff, yeah. not just turning up to cut a ribbon, but actually getting involved in our community and local community groups and charities and actually delivering Is stuff. Is the government
2: doing do enough for that now as you sit here? If Boris Johnson was sitting with us at the Red Lion pub now, what would you say
0: to him? I could give him a few ideas, I think, of where we can go further and go faster. Um but I think, you know, it's really easy to, to criticise the Prime Minister. And, you know, I mean, we're all worthy of criticism. None of us get everything right. But I think we also need to look at the fact that over the past two years, he's had quite a lot going on. He's getting
2: a hard time, isn't he, at the moment?
0: Mm. Um, not is. least from
2: his, own, from his own back benches. Did you, do you trust him? I mean, is he a trustworthy person for you?
0: You know, I, I certainly trust him to, to kind of deliver. You know, I think he was so sincere when he stood on the steps of Downing Street and talked about the levelling up agenda and, and kind of creating opportunities for people who don't have kind of equal access to those opportunities. Um, I really do trust in him to, to deliver that. But obviously it's, it's the job of everyone in the party to kind of help, to help steer that and make sure that we're getting it right. And it's our job as MPs to be listening ears on the ground and feed that in. And I think at some points, communication probably hasn't been as good as it could be The from us upwards and certainly from, from number 10 down. So that's something that I think moving into the new year, we definitely need, need what to work on. Um I don't know I just just more focused attention on I think listening to the backbenchers because I think sometimes you know it, it, it there's a bit of a feeling that you know government sees as a bit of a nuisance getting in the way of of uh, of kind of making policy but actually We don't do it to be awkward. We do it to try and help to try and make the policy the best it can be, the most effective it can be kind of for our own constituencies, mainly for the opportunities that brings to our constituents, but also politically, because if we're delivering really good stuff that's going to make people's lives better, then people are going to feel that when it comes to the next election too.
2: And moral leadership, has he lost his moral compass? Did he ever have one, do you think?
0: (laughs) I think it's been difficult. There's been kind of loads of kind of stories that have come out that really haven't been helpful (laughs) over the uh, the past few weeks in particular. But I think, you know, what people at home are looking for is is delivery. They're looking to see their lives change for the better. And I think as long as as long as we do that and we mm. really commit to doing that over the next few months and years, then I'm pretty sure the Prime Minister's fine.
2: It's been a massive year for you personally. I was privileged to write up the interview you gave to uh, Gloria De Priero, who I know is a former Labour MP, to GB News. Mm-hmm. That was a big moment for you.
0: It was, it was. And it's, it's strange because I didn't really think of it I didn't plan it I didn't plan to kind of talk about that stuff but um it just felt like the right time I'm kind of very comfortable in yeah. in who I am now so yeah I decided that now is the time to very lightly talk about you know being bisexual I since spoke at a panel event actually for it's, it's a bit niche so bear with me for <laughs> um elected female bisexuals Right. I think, I think that's, that's what it would be. It was, it was a really fun event. And so there, was, there were two from the United States and myself and, and Nadia Whittam um, here in the UK. And it was really interesting just kind of hearing reflections on different people's journeys to actually, you know, realising their sexuality and kind of coming out. And mine's been really easy and straightforward. And, and that's great. But it's, it's a generational it's,
2: thing, I think. I think I mean, yeah. definitely as a parent, you find you find your children discussing it much more it's, it's mm-hmm. a fluid thing no problem and it's a generational thing for a lot of people I think to understand yeah. that
0: yeah I know I've had some <laughs> some really amusing conversations with, with kind of older colleagues who you know have, have been gone out of their way to say how supportive they are and how you know how proud they are and all this stuff and then start asking me questions about it because they're curious and, mm-hmm. and some of the questions probably uh, verge on the side of inappropriate had, I take it <laughs> all in good jest and good humour but one of the things what's, like, what's the worst question <laughs> I think I think the funniest one I got asked was do you find dating harder? Because like on the day, do you have to decide if you want to date a man or a woman? I was like, <laughs> I was like that's not quite how it works. I, I would say I have a bigger pool to choose from. So, you know, yes, it makes it a bit easier lucky. to be fair. But um, so that was all very good natured and not done yes. out of any sort of malice or anything, no. but just, I, so I consider my, my duty to run an educational function for, and for try the to- and- uh, party. <laughs> something like that, yeah.
2: And you're campaigning hard as an MP and you have this amazing campaign about single blow trauma. Yes, uh, how how is that going? And briefly explain that to the listeners.
0: Yeah, so um when I was a kid, uh back in two thousand seven, my dad was killed by um a single blow to the head. Very, you know, unexpected, a real shock for the family. Um and what we found was that these kind of events are relatively rare. And as a result, the criminal justice system isn't always great at handling them. My family was really lucky. We had great support from the local police. Victim support were great. We, you know, I I really can't fault them at all. Mm. But there are so many cases where the the kind of families of victims feel there isn't a proper sense of justice because sentences are really, really low. Um, You know, you have people who literally kill someone and receive an 18 month sentence and are out, you know, in nine months or or even less. So I launched um, the all party parliamentary group for one punch assaults. Back in February, which was the February seventeenth, which was the anniversary of my dad dying, um, and got an incredible reaction actually, or emails from people all over the country and a few internationally saying, "My family have experienced this," or "One um, of my friends, this happened." There's no to. on it,
2: is there Really? I mean, there
0: isn't no, because they're recorded as as assaults rather than a single punch assault. So we don't really have a full picture. Of it, so um, we launched the inquiry in February, um, where we're talking to um, victims who've been left with life changing injuries but haven't passed away, the families of victims who have sadly passed away we're also seeking kind of any perpetrators who'd be willing to come and talk to us um, as well as kind of judges and police officers and anyone else kind of involved in this just to get the widest possible picture and also to kind of understand particularly from um, kind of victims' families why they feel that sense of injustice and what steps they believe can be taken to improve that because you lose a loved one in, in this sort of way nothing will ever be enough there is nothing that will ever make you feel like there is a true sense of justice but certainly you know knowing that the perpetrator got sort of a year in prison is 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 kind of very disrespectful actually
2: so it's sentencing It's for more bigger sentences you think
0: probably or maybe even a new um a new category of offense actually that sits somewhere between um sort of uh gbh and manslaughter which could be something like um, assault resulting in death. So then there'd at least be a recognition in the sentence that this is a more serious crime. uh, The sentences would hopefully reflect that. But also um, the educational function too, you know, we really want to help raise awareness. And I'm working with a brilliant charity called One Punch UK who run a campaign every December around the Christmas period when people are going out getting a bit merry Mm. um, called Punched Out Cold to remind people that, you know, if you are going out having a drink, don't raise your fists because one punch can kill.
2: Yeah. And this Christmas, what are your plans?
0: spending as much time horizontal as I can <laughs> just just a bit of a rest because it has been a really rough year tough year it's been a tough year for all of us and I think we're just ready for, for a rest so probably a bit too much food and drink and a few Christmas movies in a onesie or something
2: <laughs> Absolutely Well Danny Davison thank you for coming on, on this podcast we totally love having you on uh, Happy Christmas you
0: Christmas do come on
2: again and best of luck with your campaign That's brilliant Thank you Right, don't go anywhere. In just one moment, I'll be joined by two journalists with six decades of experience covering politics in Westminster and Brussels and elsewhere. It's quite a listen. Right after this. Hello, I'm Brian Moore, the former England hooker. International Rugby is back, and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact, Every Monday, we get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every rook, more, and TMO decision. Get the inside track ahead of the next Six Nations and hear the likes of England coach Eddie Jones and the breakthrough star Freddie Stewart. Search for Brian Moore's full contact wherever you're listening to this. My next guests are two people who could be defined as titans of journalism. Between them, they've reported on Westminster and elsewhere for the past 60 years, 30 years plus each. And they're both calling today. Both are ending one chapter of their lives and starting another. Adam Bolton was the political editor of Sky News for, can you believe it, 25 years. And he's worked on the channel since the channel's launch. And Libby Vina has reported from Westminster, Brussels, Paris, Berlin and Sydney in her 34 years at ITN. Well, Libby Wiener, Adam Bolton, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to see you in the Red Line Pub, which you both know very well, because you're both very excellent and, and brilliant political journalists, aren't you? Well, I don't know about that. I do know the Red Lion very
3: well.
1: <laughs> what more is there to say, Chris?
2: I can I ask you quickly, for uh, listeners who may not know your work, Libby, describe your career in a tweet.
1: Nearly 20 years in the lobby, covering news uh, for ITN as well as having three children, covering home affairs, the Strange Ways riot, uh, the 80s reforms of education and health, and before that, a local newspaper and BBC South.
2: And you've just retired from ITN, haven't you, after all that time?
1: I'm just, uh, yep, uh, taking a break is how I your, like to do it. Your swan song is
2: uh, North, the North Shropshire by election result. And Adam Bolton.
3: Two startups, uh, TVM, Breakfast Television, uh, then being a founder member of Sky News, uh, political editor at both and uh, occasional columnist for the Sunday Times, another outlet.
2: Libby, how has journalism changed since you first started? I mean, mobile phones just started. There was no social media before, which seems to drive the agenda so much nowadays.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, you did have more thinking time. Uh, you also had more time where you weren't uh, constantly available to the news desk. And I think that made a big difference in terms of talking to people, thinking about stories, how they were developing. One of the other overseas postings I had was actually in Brussels in the early 90s. And uh, it was fascinating seeing who the key players were there. One, Boris Johnson, of course, was um, the correspondent for The Telegraph at the time. And uh, just another hack in the pack. So it's interesting to see where he's ended up.
3: It's changed an awful lot. I mean, the the real truth is that I think I've just actually completed a documentary running on Sky Over Christmas, uh, first run the 22nd of uh, December, it called Feral Beast, taking Tony Blair's attack on, on the media uh, as the title. And it, it's changed an awful lot. And for me, I think the big change has been access, the willingness of political figures to engage in argument, perhaps with a bit of a relationship of trust that you were probably going to talk about the issues of the day rather than gossip on on, on the sidelines, to a time now where we 've had these growth of you know spin doctors, spads, digital communications and and now cabinet ministers basically are hidden away from the media a lot of the time, uh, and um, you know a lot of communication consists of texting. Uh, which, of course, was something which didn't exist uh, between special advisors and reporters. I think it's a, you know, I think it's all a bit of a fraud on the public now, to be honest. Yeah, Libby.
1: I would um, uh, say that it, I wouldn't see it quite so bleakly. I mean, I think that. Uh, in some ways, although I'm surprised to see um, a hack from Brussels in number 10, it is nevertheless true that journalists have had a growing influence on politics. We had the Alastair Campbell years where they were behind the scenes. We now actually have a journalist in number 10. Yeah, and I think yeah well, that's da- great, isn't it? It's, well, the it's danger, going so well. <laughs> the danger for us is that he thinks like a journalist and he's quite uh, good at manipulating uh, the lobby uh, getting the headlines that he wants. And I think a prime example of this is when the Owen Paterson, Geoffrey Cox, sleaze stories were running very hot. Uh, he was in Glasgow for COP26 and he suddenly answered one question by saying, Britain is not a corrupt country. Now, he hadn't been asked that uh, question, but it immediately dominated social media and all the next day's headlines. And he'd switched it from being about sleaze in the Tory party to about Britain whether Britain was a corrupt country yeah, but it was most not, people it was go nonsense. hurrah hurrah it, mm. it and was, they, they think it isn't but uh, it was a clever deflection a clever use of us so he, I think he that's what we have doing. to guard against yeah, yeah but I think um, that
3: was, it was nonsense It was. It, I agree with Libby absolutely it was clever and that's one of the things Boris Johnson can do but it took everyone away from what yeah, the yeah. real issues of the time were and um, this kind of shallow uh, manipulation i think it, it has been on the increase and of course we have the two figures yeah, yeah. of johnson and trump both uh, emerging but being positive about it, don't you think that we have more scrutiny of our leaders now because of
2: social media there's no there's no off time for them at all in the old days it was just you you two no um, scrutinizing the executive or, or the government but now they now there's everyone's got a phone pictures everywhere being shared all the time so it's a different kind of scrutiny you
3: no know, obviously look obviously social media is a reality i i would argue whether it actually leads to more forensic scrutiny or whether it actually leads to, you know, more chaff and chatter and and false stories and, and indeed pylons which may not be justified.
2: Libby?
1: I think that it can uh, be a force for good and a force for evil. I think that is the problem, that uh, MPs are subject to an enormous amount of abuse. They were very much respected members of the community, really, when I started... And that's not that long ago. <laughs> it seems quite a long time now. Mm. And uh, I think that's a, a very um, retrograde step. I think the fact that they are personally abused and that the uh, Twitter sphere and social media is not subject to the same regulations that us as broadcasters are subject to. I think that has to change if politics is going to survive.
2: Mm. Has the quality as of the politicians declined, do you think? I mean, I often think as we get older, the police get younger, and there's a feeling of, you know... We're older than people I'm, I'm as old as the people in the cabinet nowadays, and it affects how you view them. I mean, are they a lower caliber nowadays? Well, I
3: think I think you've got to be careful not to be sort of Norma Desmond in exactly. Sunset Boulevard exactly. exactly. What I do think is that the level of scrutiny and the level of disrespect or contempt which politicians are now subjected to does discourage people. I remember Shirley Williams saying this to me, that she felt that that the quality people weren't coming through because why could they? You know, they could go off and be lawyers or bankers or in business or whatever, or teachers. And, you know, I think one of the sort of, well, the sort of double pivot which has happened in our time as journalists is, first of all, the MPs' expenses scandal, whatever the rights and wrongs of it, totally destroyed people's perception of what politicians... Were like whether they could be trusted whether they could be respected whether they were all in it or whatever and then of course we had the phone hacking scandal which i think also affected public confidence in all journalists and if that's uh, a scandal we're with we're, banks yeah well yeah we know we're at the bottom so that so that i think there is less tolerance and, and less tolerance of of argument and less tolerance if you like more generally of leadership of people saying look you know this is what's happening
1: I would say that one of the problems is that there are a lot of talented people in Parliament, but uh, it's a very, very strange administration that we have at the moment. We have a Prime Minister that has promoted people primarily because of their loyalty over Brexit, not because of their talent. And uh, until very recently, I would say that most of the people in the cabinet were definitely not as good as people who were in the cabinet when we started. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a choice that uh, Johnson has made. He has actually expelled people who are highly talented from the Conservative Party. And that's something we've never seen before. Um, This is over the vote for whether they would back a no deal Brexit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why um, we've seen a change in the whole flavour of um, politics, that this government is unlike previous governments. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, whom, you know, many conservatives like to model themselves on. I mean, she was um, a very singular politician with very strong views, but she didn't put her people in the cabinet who couldn't stand up to her who didn't try and stand up to her and didn't have intellectual Well I intellect she, she liked their...
3: an argument Margaret Thatcher that was the thing Well
2: by the end though, the joke was they're all the vegetables weren't they that was the that was by, joke, by the end That was a joke
1: but she she did promote people with huge intellect and I think that uh, Boris Johnson seems to take the opposite view that blind loyalty But are they down are they down about
2: benches trying to get in the government the people you're describing are they out there these massively intellectual MPs well, who want to be in the in the cabinet. Or I, think,
1: I don't want to overdo the massively intellectual, <laughs> but there are some very talented people who mm. were in the cabinet, Jeremy Hunt, Greg Clark, who are not um, being considered for high office. And then other the people
3: have been pushed out, David Gore, Amber <laughs> Rudd, all, all that kind of yeah. stuff. But, you know, I think there's also, of course, been a similar kind of purging and repurging on the Labour side, you know, with the, the Corbyn years, um, forcing a lot of people out and in the end I think uh, quite a lot of politicians decide you know is it worth the candle or am I going to quit and go off and do something else you know like um, you know Alan Milburn would be one example for mm-hmm. example.
1: That was a loyalty test to Corbyn I mean I've followed Corbyn for six weeks in 2019. And that was a cult in the same way that Brexit is a bit of a cult. And I think that is a new phenomenon. We've seen governments of all different stripes, but they've been broader churches than we've seen recently in terms of the front bench of either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party. That's changing under... Keir Starmer is beginning to change a bit with Boris Johnson, promotion according to talent, I think you'd say some of the new promotions. it's it's it's, it's
3: It's It's a better cabinet than it was, but on the other hand there are some very high promotions, I mean, you know, what is the point of Dominic Raab really, I mean, honestly...
2: Well, well he's, he's a pretty bright bloke, human rights lawyer.
3: Well, says who? I mean, you know, private eye disputes how good a lawyer he was. I, I'm not going to go into it. I don't know. But I mean, yeah. I would just he say, may have I would just, I would just but he's say, we've got fellow. this man who is deputy prime minister, and I would just say, point to one achievement in his entire political career.
2: Uh, well, I'm not here to defend uh, Donald Robb. There must be some out there. I mean, do you think. Uh well <laughs> who else do you rate in the cabinet Bolton? I'm all. not going to go any further I'm just
3: going to give you <laughs> examples one. but I think you know and I think it comes back to Libby's point really about mm. government by journalists I mean Michael yeah. Gove would be another journalist who's in the cabinet and they they're good at generating a story mm. I don't see the evidence that they're actually very good at administration say, or so, running a country
2: so what's interesting with Gove particularly then he was in charge of um, supply chain management back in September completely difficult went very difficult blew up and suddenly Steve Bartley takes over a very boring lawyer and and they everyone has got a turkey for Christmas. I mean, yeah. arguably, he draws in attention, draws in all the stuff, wants to be in the heart of a big of a big uh, conversation and maybe controversy, which may not help policy making. But I think yeah. the
1: trouble with the last two years is that we've had a prime minister who has treated parliament uh, with contempt. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, seeing parliament being prorogued back in uh, the autumn of twenty nineteen was the most startling event I think I've seen. In british politics he's not a man
2: of parliament maybe this week it came back to bite him because the backbench 2922 committee really put one over on him this this week to say you know listen to us more boris johnson or you're in trouble that was having happened this week and maybe it's a moment when he's got to start being more of parliament than he has been in the past i don't know
1: well i think that um definitely you know numbers still matter you know the famous yes, addictive yeah learn to count but Uh, He hasn't had a problem with that. He had an 80-seat majority, and I think that gave him an enormous amount of confidence and a huge cushion. Plus, the pandemic means he's been able to use the platform of being the Prime Minister to um, hold press conferences and not be accountable to Parliament. We've seen this week the Speaker literally enraged at the behaviour of the government in terms of not coming and delivering statements to Parliament. And that's been a trend that I don't think... Can necessarily yeah. continue I think he definitely Needs to think about That was base. the That was
2: the Sunday announcement ahead of
3: um, Yeah but I mean he's, a, you know, he's nearly 60 People don't change And, and uh, Libby was talking We were talking uh, On the way in About um, Boris Johnson Who we all got to know When he was in Brussels Libby obviously In the Brussels pack, mm. but, And we making those Kind of uh, Quarterly visits To Brussels And working alongside of it And all the traits Of Boris Johnson well, uh, That people don't like now Were there then And you know, uh, Max Hastings, I think, has this wonderful line about Boris Johnson, which is, those who know him best like him least. Um, for who knows, best? A, a, well, sure who no, knows him best? Well, no, but think I think it's a question of getting to know Boris Johnson. I think almost all journalists, except for the sort of fan club and the sort of spectator fanboys, were pretty... Appalled at the rise of John Boris Johnson as in in politics as a personal.
2: Jealousy amongst maybe your no, your generation? I don't think you jealousy is all. I just I, 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 think, I just
3: think you know questions about his you know moral fabric or whatever. And I think what has happened with the Owen Patterson affair is that the Tory Party, who are quite happy to go along for a ride, are now getting to know Boris Johnson better, and the trajectory will be whether the country really wakes up to Boris Johnson in the round or carries on thinking he's a good laugh and a bit like that. I think
1: that I, possibly that's a little unfair to him because he is an incredibly astute politician. He's he is where he is because he understands the public mood and read it incredibly well. And I think uh, we shouldn't ignore that. But the question is, can he change from campaigning mode to governing mode? And at the moment, we haven't seen any evidence that he can. And I think that is the big problem.
2: And his bandwidth has been absorbed by COVID, hasn't he? He has had no chance to see even what Johnsonism is, if it is anything at all. I mean, levelling up white paper. Yeah, Boris Johnson
3: is Johnson is Johnsonism is Boris Johnson.
2: Well, he's defining Toryism, isn't he? he whatever Toryism is, he says it is that day. So the sp- spending heavily, taxing a lot,
3: Um, The problem is the Tories... They they aren't buying it, though, are they? The the, 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 the Tory party aren't buying it. Rishi Sunak isn't buying it. But going back to, you know, the positive side of Boris Johnson and him understanding the public mood, as, as Libby was saying, it's interesting that on restrictions on Covid, he basically is on the public wavelength. The public is fearful of what's going on and want to take measures. And the Tory party have got themselves... Absolutely yep. against the public wave, but all those rebels, at least.
2: I've got to ask you about your careers, which are epically epic in what they have in, in their scope, <laughs> 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 long. And if way are describing it, what's been your highlight, um, Adam Bolton? Is it having a row live on telly with when you're a bit tired with Alastair Campbell after one election night, or is it a killer question you put in on one of your many interviews with various prime ministers?
3: No, I think. I mean, I think that's probably a low light, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Overall, in in British politics, there have been two very exciting stories. I mean, one was Thatcherism, uh, which I was covering for for most of the period from from the early 80s. And then the end of Thatcherism, that was extremely dramatic. And that, of course, took in the miners' strike, which was a fantastic story. Because I get most interested in politics when the high politics, if you like, the electoral politics, the policies, suddenly really connect with public opinion and the minor strike was one example of that oddly the death of diana in 97 was that and I, I do think brexit has been like that and then the other sort of great story remarkable story which now people who don't remember it and you know with this television documentary people are looking at it again i mean the rise of new labor the transformation first under neil kinnock then tony blair into you know what seemed the natural party of government for a period was, you know, amazingly exciting. Mm. Libby?
1: Well, I, I would say that in some ways I saw the decline of new Labour um, having mm. joined in 2003. The first debate I heard in the House of Commons was probably the highlight in terms of what went on in the House of Commons. And that was an extraordinary standard of debate. Amazing. Uh, the Iraq war debate. Um, but at the same time, the justification for the war became really the key a thing that made the Blair government unravel and we watched that day in day out the constant justification for why we'd gone in with the Americans the death of David Kelly the Hutton inquiry yeah. it was an incredible unraveling for one you know massive policy mistake I don't think that the last 10 years we've seen drama in that way Brexit was a huge drama but it was a a campaign. Um, I just wanted to say one final thing of the biggest change, which I still can't get over in my career, is that um, when I started in journalism, not in Westminster, but I started in journalism, there were just 19 women MPs. One of them was the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. There are now 222 women MPs. And that is a phenomenal cultural change. And whatever you know we're talking about in terms of social media changing things or lowering the tone of debate i think that has improved the quality of our public life and our politics dramatically it's a massive cultural change yeah
3: and also of course i mean you know when i worked at tvm uh, i was on the election team with diane abbott who then went mm-hmm. on to become the first black woman mm-hmm. uh, mp and and the arrival of uh, uh, diverse uh, mps of all sorts and of mm-hmm. course um, uh, openly gay MPs, which, yeah. you know, all, all of is—it is, has been a massive social change.
2: Are there, are there tricks of the trade you can share with uh, our listeners about how to get the best answer out of somebody?
3: Well, I think the best way to do it, and, and this is sort of different from the kind of Paxman, kind of Rottweiler approach, is is I think the best way to do it is is to be conniving, really, is to encourage people mm. to say what they think. Uh, you know my, my sort of model I of, of, of think it was a very good interview was David Frost who I, I worked with at, at, at TVAM and, and I think to encourage people first and help them even to say what they want is often the best way of getting the most revealing uh, quotations I mean I remember Des Wilson who was um, chairman of the uh, Lib Dems he said you know what I like about your style is uh, they don't even notice the knife going in <laughs> Libby any
4: tricks I of think, trade you've got? I
1: think re- as a correspondent as opposed to having guests on your show I think it is different I'm a great believer in the short question it's not about you it's about no absolutely you Couldn't the could of and sometimes you can plant ideas which do create stories and I have to say one of one of the things getting back to you know weapons of mass destruction and the um, Iraq war debacle I remember that Tony Blair was giving a press conference I think with Berlusconi strangely and uh, there were a few questions and um, essentially I said, you know, did he accept now that he'd been given duff information? And he said no, he wasn't given duff information. And So this kind of snapped and the Italian journalists in the audience also snapped it. So it's, it, the story became Blair denies he was given duff information about the wef- weapons of mass destruction. Yes. And I think it was the word, it kind of summed up the nonsense that we were being served up, you know.
2: I once rattled Theresa May by saying to her when she announced the U-turn on the dementia tax, "What else will change in your manifesto between now and the election?" Nothing has changed, she said, and that became a big moment of that of that tweet.: Well, that was that was
3: you, was it? Mm. Was she got
2: so cross. She adopted my language, <coughs> which made it much worse for her because I think everything, everything had clear changed. And why do you why do you both leave? Libby, you you just r- retired, have you?
1: I'm having a break. Having a break, yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, stepping back. Stepping it. back. It's a very fast-paced business news, and um, yes. uh, I've been doing it for a long. And the last five years have been quite extraordinary since Brexit, two elections, um, the pandemic, uh, and uh, I think it's just time to slow down yeah. a little bit.
3: <laughs> Good. And yourself, Adam? Why are you leaving the Sky? Uh, Well, Sky, as you know, changed hands, Um, left the ambit of the Murdoch Empire and is now part of Comcast. And I think that slowly new managements have different views as to what they want to do, that um, Comcast is very interested in distribution, is very interested in digital. Uh, I was more comfortable working for an organization which had the word news in its uh, Mm. title, if you like, you know, Here we are talking to you, a newspaper journalist on a podcast, which is going out. I think that the competition in the electronic digital era means that people are having to take decisions about what they want to do and... uh, it seemed to me that at Sky they're very concerned, they're very interested in the platform, they're very interested in digital, and perhaps less interested in what we call conventional broadcast television. Are we nearing the end of that point? Do you think? Will
2: Sky News last forever? Or?
3: I don't think anything lasts forever.
2: No, not in journalism.
3: Well, in life. In life, yeah. No one gets out not of not here even alive. Adam Sorry to Libby break Kuna. it to you. No one gets out of here alive, Chris. <laughs>
2: And looking back now, just finally, at the very end of your time, you know, with your current uh, jobs, what advice would you give yourself, the the young Adam Bolton starting out at Sky 33 years ago?
3: Enjoy it, I think.
2: Libby?
1: It's a difficult one. Um, I would say um, uh, keep persevering. I've been very positive about some of the aspects of politics, but you also get people who do try and control what you're doing, who do try and limit your access or manipulate you and just stand your ground. I think I've done a reasonable job of standing my ground, but I think knowing that that was the right thing to do rather than questioning it sometimes, I think that is the advice I'd give to young journalists, is just, um, you know, if you follow your instinct... Follow your instinct and, um, you know, do search out for the truth. It's very, very important.
3: There's yeah, I think a lot- that's absolutely very good. Um, right. But I also think it's very important to go into these things with no preconceptions to actually not just follow your instinct, but use your eyes rather than your prejudice.
2: Well, on that note, Anna Bolton, Louis Vina, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics and best of luck for the future. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's your lot for this week, listeners. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this show, what you'd like more of, perhaps what you want to hear less of, as we go into 2022. Do email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet us, we're at chopperspodcast. Telegraph subscribers, thank you. And for those who haven't yet signed up, I haven't yet written you off. You can get your first month subscription to Telegraph completely free of charge at telegraph.co.uk forward slash chopper and if you want to hear what i'm thinking about politics five days a week please sign up for chopper's politics newsletter which tells you what those in power are whispering to me in the corridors of westminster every weekday and the link to sign up will be in the show notes for this episode thank you to my guests this week deanna Davison, adam bolton and libby vena thanks to my brilliant team of producers giles gear louisa wells and theo luludis But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. And finally, of course, do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can. You won't regret it. Until next time, happy Christmas
4: and cheerio! Ho, ho, ho! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen